Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, thanks for being with us for uh, another show. We are thrilled to be able to be coming to you now that we have an election that is uh, settled legally, although I know there are some of you out there who are unhappy with the way things turned out. We do have a new governor-elect, even as Stacey Abrams plans to um, investigate and perhaps file a federal lawsuit uh, dealing with what she sees as significant issues in uh, the way the election turned out. Uh, today we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about uh, Governor-elect Kemp's agenda, and uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. I, I want to, first of all, though, uh, say to everybody out there, this is our final uh, live show uh, before Thanksgiving. Tomorrow we are going to present to you an interview that I did with Doris Kearns Goodwin, the great American presidential biographer. She came into the studio a few weeks ago, and she is just, she is so passionate, continues to be so excited to talk about American history. And I hope you'll listen to the show because you'll hear that in everything she has to say. She has a brand new book out about uh, President, four presidents, leadership in turbulent times. She talks about Abraham Lincoln, Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson. And, and the book uh, describes major crises that they faced and how they used their leadership skills to uh, surmount the obstacles that they face. So that's tomorrow. We'll obviously be off on Thanksgiving, and we're going to take Friday off as well. And then we're back with another live show on Monday. So this is a great chance to say happy Thanksgiving to all of you out there. All right, let's get going. First of all, Tamar Hallerman, the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us from Washington. Hi, Tamar. Hi. I'm glad that you could... Happy post-election. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, that's exactly right. And to you, too. Um, we're going to be talking with you in a few minutes um, about how this shift in the House leadership in the Democratic Party taking over is going to make an impact on members of our congressional delegation. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. Here in the Atlanta studio with me, Ed Lindsay, former Republican legislator from Buckhead, now the head of um, government affairs—I always say government affairs or government relations. Government affairs. Government affairs for Denton's Law Firm, the world's largest law firm. Thanks for joining us, Ed. Thank you for having me. And Michael Owens is back with us. He's the chairman of the Cobb County Democratic Party. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hello. The the newly re-elected chairman of the Cobb County Democratic Party. I didn't Party. realize that. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah, last, uh, last Thursday, I think, we had a— we had our election to elect our new executive committee um, that will take us into uh, the land of 2020. Well, that's well, <laughs> congratulations to you uh, uh, for that, Michael. All right. Um, we got a lot to gr of ground to cover, but let's start with the fact that yesterday uh, Brian Kemp gave his first, I think it's fair to say, extensive interview on his plans when he takes office in January. And um, he laid out in very, very broad strokes some of what he wants to accomplish. Uh, we've pieced together uh, a compilation of what he had to say. Let's listen to that and on the other side discuss it. Start working on those things that we promised, you know, teacher pay raises, cutting taxes again, uh, increasing the rural hospital tax credit. That is certainly a priority of mine, and so we'll start working on those things immediately. I've been a strong supporter of the Second Amendment. I'm going to continue to do that. I've been a strong supporter of life. I'm going to continue to do that. I've been a conservative when it comes to budgeting issues. So that's uh, Brian Kemp talking to uh, Channel 2 News and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ed, uh, he, the teacher pay raise, the $5,000 pay raise that he said he would give to each teacher in the state was a big deal at the time that he announced it. You heard him say yes. he's going to stick to that as uh, governor. It, it remains to be seen. He's going to have to convince 
the Republican <laughs> leadership in the legislature that he's got a way to pay for it. Well, you know, that that, that is always a challenge. Uh, but we are dealing with times with uh, raising state revenue as a result of, of better economic times. And uh, the pledge that Republicans have made for years is as the uh, as the uh, money pot uh, slowly rises back up, uh, education would be the first item to be uh, fully funded. Uh, that was fulfilled last year when it came to the fully funding of QBE. And uh, the next step is to, uh, is to get teachers back more in line with the national averages in terms of pay. Those were pledges that, uh, that, that folks were making uh, throughout the entire recovery from the Great Recession. So it's no surprise that that's going to be one of his top priorities. Michael, it's, uh, it is going to be a challenge, though. We're not certain where uh, Speaker Ralston stands on that. He, he's obviously going to take his time to think about it. But I would su- suspect that the Speaker and the governor are like, we'll be having some conversations about I, this. I, I'd be highly surprised they haven't already. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the campaign trail is one thing. And look, I'm, I'm the first one to say I think teachers should be paid more. There's no doubt about that. Um, it's a, I think it's a $600 million package, right? $600 million teacher pay package that he's talking about. Um, and, you know, it's going to be interesting. Their proposal is one thing. And now we want to kind of see the layout of how it's going to be funded and how he plans on getting that through his own conservative uh uh, a part of the party to make happen. You you also heard in his initial statement about uh, his vision, uh, his talk about he believes he's going to come. He has a plan for helping boy rural hospitals, which are in such trouble across the state. He's going to try to expand the tax credit that allows people to give essentially uh, money to the rural hospital uh, a fund that would be distributed uh, there and. Uh, and that's clearly an important you – know, the question becomes, is that the best way to do it? But the fact that he's talking about it in and of itself uh, is probably a step in the right direction. Of course. I mean, you know, <laughs> Brian Kemp uh, arguably won this election. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter, he is, he is governor. He's going to be our governor. Um, so the idea that, that he can take, you know, something like uh, rural hospitals and, and try to – try to bolster their existence and ensure that they stay um, funded and open is key. And I think, you know, and, and I kind of opened it that way because, you know, it wasn't something he talked about on the campaign trail a lot. We talked about it a lot more on the Democratic side. Um, but, you know, with him going forward, I'm, I'm happy he takes this on and will take this on because at the end of the day, it's about Georgia. And so, you know, uh, kudos to Brian if that's what he's going to do. Again, let's see how it's going to turn into uh, an executable plan. And that's what I'm looking forward to see. Yeah, Ed, go ahead. The fact of the matter is, thank you. And, and, and I agree with Michael. It is something essential, uh, not only for the for the health of those folks who are living there. And that's the paramount concern. Uh, but also from a standpoint of economic development, we have been struggling for years to figure out what's the best way to help our, our areas of the state uh, in, that, that are more rural. And the fact of the matter is that if you don't have a, a viable health care system uh, in a county, uh, as well as some other key components, uh, you're not going to get those, those, those jobs that are going to keep uh, the, the young people in those counties and attract new people. So this is a vital part of his uh, platform. Uh, he ran uh, on a, a lot of rural issues to help revitalize rural Georgia. And so, uh, you know, it no, should be no one's no surprise to anyone uh, that this won't be something that's going to be a, a centerpiece of his agenda for 2019. Tamar, I'm sorry, I didn't yeah, mean to interrupt yet. Tamar, uh, and, and and then we get to the stickier stuff. Yeah. And it was interesting to me that he faced it head on in this interview and essentially said, you can't run from your roots. I am who I am, essentially. And so we heard from him, Tamar, that he plans to pass the toughest abortion restrictions in the country. He wants to expand gun carry so that it is essentially universal carry without any kind of licensing um, or the like. And he's committed to passing a uh, RIFRA. You know, this is where I think tomorrow it's going to get a little thornier because— He's going to have to make sure that he can get all of his Republicans on board with some of these social issues, which if you're a suburban legislator, and we can talk a little more about that, a suburban Republican, say one of the remaining ones in Michaels, Cobb County, uh, you're going to struggle with some of this a little bit, yes? 
Exactly. You know, Republicans had a really tough time this year in a lot of the Atlanta suburbs where they once dominated, like Cobb, like Gwinnett. You saw pretty much a dozen statehouse seats flip. You saw Karen Handel go down in in the 6th District and Rob Woodall almost go down in in the 7th. So I think there certainly is a delicate line for Kemp to walk, right? He's got to appeal to those middle-of-the-road, kind of more suburban, well-educated, you know, white women especially, Um, you know, kind of keep the appeal for them going into 2020 when Trump is going to be on the ballot. But at the same time, he has those Republicans who who helped him secure the Republican nomination uh, earlier this summer who expect a lot of action on some of these red meat issues, um, especially when it comes to religious liberty. My colleague Jim Galloway had a great column about that recently. Um, a lot of socially conservative, you know, uh, religious right kind of people see themselves as, as kind of being taken for granted a little bit uh, when it came to the Kemp campaign. And they see religious liberty legislation in particular as kind of the, the token that, that they think uh, will, will help Kemp prove his appreciation. Yeah, Ed, uh, let's take them one at a time for a minute. Abortion. Uh, I don't. Who was speaker when you arrived at the legislature? Lynn Richardson. Okay, so you missed the Thomas B. Murphy speaker days when <laughs> when he was the king of the hill. Yeah. And, and the reason I think about Tom Murphy is that when Tom Murphy was speaker, and really for some years after that. Even though Republicans down there, conservative Republicans, really liked the idea of finding ways to put newer uh, restrictions on abortion, he was kind of a third rail even for Republicans. Tom Murphy, in all his years, 26 years as speaker, refused to let it get very far. And Republicans have been very cautious about how far they want to go. So it's going to be interesting to see how Kemp maneuvers that. Well, that, I mean, that's always been a balance is is within the General Assembly. And, and you know, it's yet to be seen exactly what uh, what Governor-elect Kemp is, is discussing. And, and that and that's going to make a big difference sure. in terms of what exactly is he talking about uh, in terms of, of additional restrictions on, ab- on abortion and, and advancing pro-life agenda. But the fact of the matter is we've, uh, we've had a, a very much a pro-life uh, General Assembly for the last uh, 14 years. Um, and uh, we have advanced some some pretty good laws uh, protecting life over that period of time, and so let's see what what's left uh, in that area uh, that can still meet uh, certain constitutional challenges that, that that presently exist. But you know, getting back to the larger picture in terms of how you know this is going to impact uh, suburb this and other issues are going to sub- impact suburban areas. That is something that the, that Republicans are going to need to be taking a look at. Uh, the difference. I'll give you. You talked about Cobb and Gwinnett. I'll talk about Fulton, where I come from. When I first got to the General Assembly in the House, there were eight elected Republicans uh, in the House from Fulton County. Today, there are three. Uh, I'm not so sure if that represents a, a shifting in demographics or even a shifting in tone, rather shifting in policy so much as perhaps a, a shifting in tone uh, from from the president, uh, you know, in terms of, of what led to those flipping uh, of those districts. Uh, but certainly when you start talking about social conservative issues, you're going to need to be balancing that with economic development issues. Uh, that those uh, communi- suburban communities are going to be more interested in, uh, you know, and, and also, you know, education, transportation, transit, uh, you know, uh, high-tech jobs, uh, you know, and, 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 and balancing, you know, property taxes. Those are going to be issues that I think are going to be very important that the folks in those suburban areas are going to want to hear. Yeah, and yet, Michael, in this first extensive interview since uh, winning, he did emphasize some of those social issues, red meat for his base, clearly. Yeah, I, you know, <clears throat> to kind of go with what Ed was saying there, I think, you know, Gov- Gov- Governor Kemp when he becomes governor, is going to have to deal with the with the fact that he won by 50.12 percent. Right. And, um, and in a legislature where Democrats flip 14 seats, 
right, on the House side, and I think two on the Senate side. Um, you know, we are dealing with an, an, an electorate. We're dealing with a group of all throughout the metro area and then further on out to, to the rest of Georgia that that is shifting. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. And this isn't about, about you know, demographic shifting or people moving into into the state or moving into to Fulton or Cobb or Gwinnett. It, it, it's truly a shifting on where people are from their ideology. And if you look at, you know, two instances I made, one, Lucy McBath won where lots of people said she didn't stand a chance because she was a candidate that was only going to talk about, you know, gun prevention, right, or gun sense. Um, lo and behold, that is a serious issue, not only in the six, but all over the country, all over the state of Georgia. And it has nothing to do anymore with Democrats wanting to take people's guns away. That's That's a farce that's that's proven a failing talking point, I do believe. And I think it's going to become more of a failing talking point in the future. Lisa McBath won that, not because the people of the 6th Congressional District um, have been traumatized with gun violence. It is because they view this as wrong, even though it does not affect well, them. So, so Go ahead, so finish that, that. That's what I was going to say, right? The, the idea that you don't have to be directly impacted by something to, to take a stance on it and vote on a candidate for those issues, whether it impacts your area directly so, or not. Tamar, Michael went to a place that I was thinking we'd look at, too, uh, in, in terms of that. Now, you know, because you covered the race, Tamar, Lucy McBath really, we know her personal story is one that highlights the dangers that many people feel guns pose. Her son being killed in a horrible gun a violent gun death. Uh, but she really ran a race around, as, as so many Democrats around the country did, ar around uh, pre-existing conditions. Nevertheless, as Michael points out, guns were always in the background. So it, it, if you're going to be, if you're the governor-elect, if you're his floor leaders, whatever, you're going to have to be thinking about how an issue, if you're going to expand so that people can carry guns anywhere they want to without permits or whatever, you are going to have to think at some point about the impact in suburban areas that you're struggling in already. Yeah, definitely. And this is an issue, you know, from Kemp's point of view, that's wildly popular in, in a lot of these really rural counties where he did super well, where he even topped uh, you know, the turnout and the, the support that Trump got in, in 2016. At the same time, I'm not, you know, it, it's unclear how high gun control ranks in, in the issues that, that kind of suburban voters really care about. My impression was always that kind of kitchen table issues like the economy, like healthcare, were really the ones that resonated right. more with, with voters. So I think Kemp is kind of hoping that he can win over some of those kind of moderate um, you know, suburban voters w with stuff like his tax cuts and, and maybe less, you know, the gun control thing won't be as, as big of a part of that. That's right. Well, How do you stack your the issues you bring forward? Yeah, at? And, That'll and, be and, crucial. And, that is, and, 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 and to sort of take up what, what Michael was talking about a minute ago, while, yes, you know, uh, she, uh, Miss uh, Congresswoman Macbeth, uh, was known for her position on gun control. The fact of the matter is you, you look at what those interest groups came into Georgia and chose to talk about on their ads, including gun control groups mm -hmm. like the Everytown uh, organization. Did they come in and run ads in her district on the importance of gun control? No, they came in and ran ads on pre-existing conditions and health care. So, uh, so I think that, that, that it's those kind of issues uh, that are going to resonate more with suburban voters over time and to sort of pick up on what Tamar says. That's sort of the issues that we're going to that uh, governor-elect Kemp is going to need to be focusing on as well to sort of tell those suburban voters, I've got you back. I've got you back on health care. I've got you back on transportation. I've got you back on taxes. I've got you back on property taxes, et cetera. Et cetera. Well, that's why I mean how you stack your agenda mm -hmm. yeah. as the governor-elect, what issues you decide to bring and when you bring them is terribly important to any new uh, leader of a of a state, of a country, uh, of county government. And so we're going to watch how the Kemp people decide to stack what, what they yeah. do. Fair enough? Fair enough. But at the same time, as as uh, Mr. Kemp said, you know, he, he can't he, well, he can't change his roots. Right. Uh, and one of the things that is very why he was so popular in the 
primary and the runoff in particular with his base. And he became more pop, pop, at least popular enough to win the mm -hmm. popular vote uh, in the general election was that they folks did feel that there was authenticity to him and honesty to him. This is who I am. This is what I am. This is what I'm going to advance. And so it should really go be note to no one's surprise that these are the things he's going to say, yeah, I said I was going forward in the in the race. And now when it gets passed and put on my desk, I'm going to vote. I'm going to T sign it. Tomorrow, by the way, as long as we were talking about the sixth district for a minute there, am I correct that you uh, had a final accounting or an accounting to this uh, moment of how much spending happened between the handle campaigns and the McBath campaigns? Did you, are you the one who put that forward? Am I right about that? Um, I, I was responding to a tweet that I saw from Alexandria, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, ah, right. um, and I had been seeing this. I'd been seeing this statistic kind of floating around on Twitter the last few days. She said McBath won despite being outspent five to one. And I, I was saying, I, wait, I've been following the race pretty I, closely. I don't think that's <laughs> correct at all, is it? That's why I'm asking you, because I think there are people who are going to see that tweet out there. Macbeth was the beneficiary, and Michael Smiley, because he knows the district well, <laughs> of all that Bloomberg money pouring into her. Right, Michael? Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. go ahead, tomorrow. And, and the, the problem is that <laughs> the, the tweet is incomplete. You know, first of all, okay, fine. You look at the money that outside groups spent against a candidate as opposed to for a candidate. It's actually four to one that, that was spent against Nick Bass. But that also doesn't take into account the $5 million that every town <laughs> came in and spent in favor of Nick Bass. Yeah. Uh, Karen Handel only had about $30,000 spent in favor of her. So, um, you know, Lucy wasn't out there alone either. You see, Michael, and you thought it was because of your skills of delivering the Cobb County <laughs> vote in the 6th District. It was Bloomberg's money. <laughs> I, I had no doubt it was the 6th District Task Force that was out there working, knocking on those doors that won the race. Bloomberg now, somehow, though, Michael, bit. I suspect that on Tuesday when you got reelected, you were the you were the reason why she won. <laughs> Me and my team was the sole reason why Lucy flipped the six. Everyone, and, yeah, and that's important because here's here's a key rule in politics, Michael. Take credit take credit when maybe it not, may not be due because you're gonna get blamed for stuff you don't have anything to do with. Yeah. There we go. All right, all right. Look, we got to get to a break. Um, we'll do that now. When we come back, I do want to talk a little bit uh, about what happens to the Georgia congressional delegation when the 116th Congress is sworn in next uh, in January and we suddenly have a Democratic majority in the U.S. House. We'll do that in just a minute. This is Political Rewind. Giving Tuesday is coming up. It's a day when people all over the world come together to give back. I'm David Green. You listen to public radio for reporting that you trust journalism that is available to everyone in your community. And when you donate to this station on Giving Tuesday, you can be proud knowing you're supporting a service that makes a difference. Donate online at gpb.org, or you can call 800-222-4788. And above all, thanks a lot. We're back on Political Rewind. That was Ed Lindsay, you heard there, uh, a little bit off microphone. He's a Republican, former Republican legislator, and now at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Tamar Hallerman, AJC's Washington correspondent, joins us from Washington. And Michael Owens, the Democratic, uh, the chairman of the Democratic Party of Cobb, newly reelected, as he told us a little while ago, is in the studio with us as well. Tamar, you did a terrific piece the other day on what the landscape is likely to look at. We, we can't be certain about everything, but what the landscape is likely to look like for the Georgia delegation with a new Democratic majority in the House. You want to run some of that down for us? Sure. Um, well, first of all, Georgia has quite a few senior Democrats who have been kind of waiting for their, their chance to get a new subcommittee gavel and kind of all this new power. So a lot of them are going to see their stars rise. Um, at the same time, there are a lot of younger Republicans in our delegation who, um, you know, all of whom have been elected since 2010, and most of whom don't know what life is like going to be like in the minority and, and kind of the, the pains that come with that of being a little bit I don't want to say irrelevant, but, um, you know, the House is a majority-run kind of place. Um, we also had two Republicans, Doug Collins and Tom Graves, who were running to be chairman of different committees on the Hill who aren't going to get that chance. They're still hoping to be the top Republicans, but it certainly is not the same as having a gavel. 
So uh, it's interesting. We, we know, you, you point out that Hank Johnson, the Democratic congressman over in the 4th District, is likely to become the chairman of a subcommittee that will have enormous scope in terms of looking at anybody and essentially at all government agencies in one way or the other and therefore could find himself, if he chooses to, and if that's in fact what he gets, involved in the uh, Russia investigation and, and all of that, yeah? Oh, yeah. He's become a senior Democrat on the House House Judiciary Committee, um, which has oversight over things like gun control, any sort of impeachment proceedings against a, a president, voting rights. Um, so he's going to have a, a front row seat to that. Not only that, but he's expected to lead a subcommittee that would give him a subpoena power over the federal judiciary. And, you know, during the whole Brett Kavanaugh saga or saga a few months ago, you know, he had hinted that, that he might start digging around at, at some of this information that he thought Senate Republicans didn't really take advantage of back in the day. Um, so we'll watch how that unfolds, Ed, but we, we, it does fit into what we expect is going to happen, which is that Democrats are going to begin using their powers, subpoena power, uh, among other things, to start looking at some of the dealings they feel the Republicans who were in the majority failed to do in terms of how President Trump has uh, managed his office. Well, there's, you know, there's always a, a legitimate ground for, for inquiry by the congressional branch over the executive branch. But the but in the long run, uh, this new Congress and the, and the Democrats in the House are going to be known uh, by what they do sub, uh, in terms of substance, uh, substantial reg- substantive legislation. And uh, if they get sidetracked on one investigation after another, I would argue they're going to sort of play into the hands of Republican operatives who are going to be able to use that against them in 2020. Uh, but if they sort of stick to more uh, dealing with policy issues, I think they'll be better off. And then we can perhaps have a, a debate on in 2020 as to which policy direction we should go in. So it, it is going to be seen interesting to see which way they go and interesting to see, uh, assuming that uh, that uh, Ms. Pelosi uh, is able to, to grab hold of the, the gap and become speaker uh, to see which direction she's going to take. Because a, a lot of these f- folks who talk about chairmanships and what they're going to do and make a big deal of it, I've been in a general assembly when, when chairmen sometimes talk big, but it's usually the person <laughs> uh, who's either the speaker or the lieutenant governor that ultimately decides uh, what direction things go in. So uh, a lot of folks are, are going to have to wait to see see which way she wants to go. Michael, uh, one of the things that Tamar points out in her article is that Sanford Bishop, uh, the Democrat from Southwest Georgia, who has miraculously maintained his seat for decades, even <laughs> yes. though he's in a pretty red district down there, he uh, is looking at, uh, he has hopes of becoming the chairman of the appropriations uh, subcommittee that funds the Department of Agriculture and FDA. And in that role, he would have a lot of jurisdiction over what his fellow Georgian, Sonny Perdue, yes. does as Secretary of Agriculture. Yes, over his, his old former uh, Senate colleague, I think, state Senate colleague, um, Sonny Perdue. So it, it's interesting, but I mean, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of knew this was coming as, as Democrats. We had hoped this was coming to take over the House. And so there was there was preparation to talk about it. I mean, you know, there's been discussion about Nancy Pelosi becoming chair, and, and particularly in, in Georgia, what some of our, uh, our delegation would do. I mean, it's now five Democrats and six Republicans um, in, in Georgia Georgia make up the congressional delegation. So, I mean, you look back at Hank Johnson. Is that right? No, we have 13 nine representatives. Yeah, nine, nine Republicans. Nine. 14 now. We have yes, 14. 14. Yes, yeah. sorry. Nine um, Republicans. That's right. So, um, well, my math went there. But, <laughs> right. but, but yeah, I, I, looking at looking at Sanford Bishop, um, a close look at, at Congressman Hank Johnson, what he's able to do. And there's two others you didn't mention, which is... Um, 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 Senator uh, Congressman John Lewis, um, who is who said he's going to take a look at some things from a from a tax standpoint, and uh, David Scott, I think, picks up a chairmanship of a of a also an agricultural subcommittee, I think, in agriculture. Yeah, I want to yeah. go. I want to go back, if I can, Tamar, to uh, the uh, relationship that we could see develop 
between uh, Sanford Bishop and Sonny Perdue. They've worked pretty well together in many ways, I guess, but they really differ strongly on Sonny Perdue's uh, uh, desire to put in place a food, a work requirement SNAP. for SNAP benefits, what we used to call food stamp benefits. That could become a really interesting uh, fight to watch develop tomorrow. Exactly. And that's a fight that's been playing out really quietly behind the scenes over the last few months as they've been negotiating the farm bill. And it's likely, you know, that could be taken care of before Sanford Bishop gets his gavel. But that's something that will certainly continue since Republicans have really been pushing this idea for a long time. But overall, Bishop and, and Purdue seem really darn close. Um, Bishop came and spoke or uh, introduced Sonny Perdue at yep. his Senate confirmation hearing uh, back in, in spring of 2017. And I did a story based on, on Sonny Perdue's schedules recently from his first few months on the job. And there are all sorts of calls made to Sanford Bishop's office. So overall, they're pretty in sync. No wonder so Sanford Bishop be... holds on to that seat. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it gets back to, to something that I like to sort of preach on people is that, you know, 80 percent of what goes on either in the Congress or in the Georgia General Assembly is what I call train run on time uh, issues in which folks with certain expertise, whether they be a Republican or Democrat, uh, will usually come together and try to forge meaningful legislation. Uh, Sanford Bishop and Sonny Perdue are, are two such people. Uh, they both come from, obviously, from rural agricultural backgrounds. Uh, they both have a lot of knowledge in this area. Yes, they're going to disagree on certain policy issues, but nine times out of ten, they're going to try to figure out a way to make things work better uh, for the agricultural community. And, and it's that kind of collaboration that I like to see. And, you know, I'll use one other example where you have a very conservative uh, representative from North Georgia, my good friend Doug Collins, who is uh, a very strong advocate of criminal justice reform. And he has worked with a lot of folks on the other side of the aisle on that issue. And that's the sort of work that I expect to see continue uh, after uh, he gives up uh, his role on the majority side and, and moves over uh, to the um, to the to the opposition to the loyal opposition, but that's so, that's a sort of collaborative work, and those are the sort of uh, that that most of us uh, want to see more of. Um, Collins, uh, Tamar, he did want to be chair of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, is he now? Am I right that he's now uh, hoping to uh, uh, find a way to become the ranking member of the of Judiciary? Exactly. And it seems for the longest time like he had the inside track. He's been yeah. kind of campaigning internally for the last year for that position. He's been traveling all over the country over the last few months campaigning for colleagues. He's been moving a lot of bipartisan legislation. But then recently, President Trump has gotten involved in this race, and he wants to appoint Jim Jordan from Ohio, um, the, the former chairman of the House Freedom Caucus and a really loyal Trump lieutenant yeah. to the position. And yeah. that's put Colin in a really tough position because overall he's been trying to prove his loyalty to the president as well. We'll watch how that unfolds. That'll be interesting. It, it, it will be interesting. It'll also be interesting to, to see because a lot of times it's not so much party, but it is uh, the prerogatives of a respective branch of the government. And a lot of times when someone sees uh, someone from the executive branch sort of overreach into the congressional prerogatives, for instance, on who should be a committee chairman. A lot of times you see that they get the hand snapped back. All right. Um, yeah, this will, this will also be very interesting because all of this has to do with Kevin McCarthy, who was recently selected to be House Majority or House Minority Leader. He absolutely hates Jim Jordan because Jim Jordan was the one who prevented him from being Speaker yeah. back in 2015. So there's a personal... You know, some personal animosity there, but Trump is still Trump. And, you know, congressional Republicans are still so worried about overstepping or looking like they're going against the president's wishes. Yeah. And which I think tomorrow where this kind of shifts with um, the Democrats taking the House, you know, n no more will will Congress just basically look past everything Trump does without speaking. Right. At least now there's going to be, you know, there's going to be voices of 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 common sense there to say, stop, wait, what are you doing? Let's, let's Why do you it. assume that there are going to be vo voices of common sense when there will be a when you you watch right now that there's a new breed of young uh, 
it, uh, uh, people coming into office who are extremely liberal, who want to shake things up as much as they can, Alexandra Covio sure. uh, cortez being the leading example of it. I mean, and there's already concern among members of your own party that they're going to uh, run a little bit wild and, and, in fact, blow the opportunity Democrats may have to do some good work up there. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not buying that. I, th I think that's more hyperbole and hype than anything. Uh, yeah, we do have some some really dynamic, bold uh, new leaders coming in into this congressional session, and I think it's great. Um, but I don't think they're as as naive and, and radical and extreme as, as people want to make it, right? They're focused on ideas and agendas, and they do, you know, um, you know, very forcefully believe what they do, but it doesn't mean you can't be passionate about issues you want to you want to see change. You just mentioned uh, Cortez, and a perfect example of that is, you know, she was more than willing to go, you know, go visit those those um, people who were protesting in Pelosi's, Pelosi's office, outside office. Pelosi, but then turned around yesterday and said that she'd be willing to support her, at least right now, for, she did, she came out and said that she would support her for leader because she is the most progressive candidate that's out there. My point being is that, you know, it's not about you know, these new Democrats coming in and just burning the house down, right? But there's nothing wrong with demanding and say the house, it's time for it to be remodeled. No, no, but I guess my point, Tamar, is that where Democrats, I think, especially the younger new uh, members, is if, if they give the Republicans the opportunity to paint them all as crazy socialists trying to change the economics and social structure of the United States, uh, they are going to do the, the Democratic Party a little. They damage. My point being that, Michael, I, I take your point, but they, like Republicans, are going to have to be thoughtful about how they pursue their agenda rather sure. than just uh, be passionate. Let me get Tamar into this for a minute. Tamar? I, I happen to think that it's only a matter of time before we see kind of the liberal version of the House Freedom Caucus come up. And this is it, it's kind of inevitable, right? Because Democrats have a majority, but it's a very, very narrow one. And, you know, there's going to be a group or two that starts breaking off and realizing, hey, you know, it only takes 20 or so. Hey, you know, if we stick together, we can get concessions from our leaders on issues we care about. Why wouldn't they do that? I mean, it'll be a total thorn in the side of Pelosi or, or whoever's running the House Dems, but it is only a matter of time before we see. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm thinking about as well. You, you said it much better than I yeah. did. Thank you, Tamar. Well, the danger will be not so much for those folks on the liberal wing of the Democratic Party who are going to be pushing hard. Those interest groups, uh, I've seen interest groups on the right and see how they operate. Interest groups on the left aren't any different. They are generally single-minded. Yeah, that's what they don't accept, said, they don't accept nuances. They yeah. don't accept shades of gray. They start to making certain demands. And that gets tough, particularly for those folks that help the Democrats get in the majority, who oftentimes were folks like Ms. McBath, who got elected in swing districts or arguably marginally Republican districts, but who got elected for various reasons this particular cycle. And, and just as uh, I've seen in the past, uh, you know, certain policies make it more difficult for more mainstream Republicans who hold office on the on, on the conservative side. I, you know, you're gonna have the same situation there. You're also gonna have the same situation here in Georgia, with a lot of these seats that we talked about earlier that did swing uh, to the Democrats in seats. suburban districts, uh, including my own, as a matter of fact. And uh, there is, you know, they're going to be joining a caucus uh, that is decidedly more liberal than than their districts are and whether or not and how they are going to be able to balance uh, their representation of these sort of moderate swing districts that could easily go Republican or Democrat when they've got a caucus that uh, wants to push them to the left. And so that's going to be sort of the, the, the that's the difficulty that is faced not only uh, by a lot of these Dems who got elected uh, here in Georgia in the suburban areas, but also uh, the difficulty for I, Democrats on the national level. I've got to get to another break, but before I do, tomorrow, real quickly, we know that uh, the, the election of the new speaker will be next week. When? week from tomorrow, is that right? Next Wednesday, I think, midweek. Next Wednesday. So yeah. um, what are you here? Have you had a chance? Uh, have any of the members of the delegation, the Georgia delegation, the Democrats, uh, 
we know John Lewis has already announced that he supports Pelosi. Have you heard from Lucy McBath? Have you heard from, uh, I guess, the others, the Sanford bishops uh, have been around for a long time, David Scott. They're safely in Pelosi's corner, are they? I've heard from everybody but McBath. So okay. Johnson, David Scott, um, John Lewis, Sanford Bishop all say they'll support Pelosi. McBath, you know, kind of hedged during the campaign, yep. but she was not on this letter um, of 16 Democrats yesterday saying they'd oppose her. So I, I would not be surprised if she stuck with Pelosi. But to, to Mara, to kind of counter that point of they're, they're the, the, the leftist that is pushing against Pelosi, those 16, those, those, those 16 Congress people, they were not to be considered the most left of, of our Democratic Party, correct? Yeah, there were also some, some centrists yeah. um, and people kind of in, in swing districts who were, or, or people from the industrial Midwest who were worried as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't think this um, was, ide- yeah. it's, this isn't ideologically driven, is it, Tamara? This is about whether it's time for new leaders, member, new members who said, hey, we ran for change. Don't ask us to vote for uh, somebody who's been in power for a long time. And if I could add exactly. one thing. And, and it's in... And it's in those swing districts where Pelosi has been used as kind of a a tool, a political tool by Republicans as kind of this toxic person. And and so it it is those centrists like Connor Lamb Mm -hmm. who who felt like they had to run against her. Yeah, the the Republicans don't want her, Ed, because they know how effective she is (laughs) as a leader. Well, yeah, and and perhaps they do because they know know where she'll go. But my, my point that I wanted to make simply is that this is a nice parlor game in November. But we saw this in 2014 with a lot of Republicans who ran, oh, by God, we are not yeah. going to back the Speaker of the House. We're going to we're going to go up there and we're going to change things. and We're going to vote him down and we're going to put somebody else of our own. And when they got up there, including some that came out of Georgia, they all voted for the Speaker of the House. I got to get to another break. And of course, it's a parlor game, Ed. But don't you understand? That's what we love to do here on Political And it's why our listeners are so into the parlor game. I like the parlor game. I'm just making sure folks understand understand what we're doing. All right. We got to get to another break. When we come back, I do want to talk a little more in depth about a couple of the issues that we think are going to be that we glossed over a little in terms of the agenda that Brian Kemp sort of sketched in yesterday. And then I want to talk about Thanksgiving for a couple minutes. We'll do that in just a minute. On the next Fresh Air. Climbing a sheer vertical rock thousands of feet high, using little cracks and edges of the wall to hold onto and balance your body weight. We talk with Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgerson about their historic free climb on El Capitan's notorious Dawn Wall in Yosemite. It's the subject of a new documentary. Join us. Fresh Airs this afternoon at 3 here on GPB. You can also listen live online at gpbnews.org. There are lots of ways to give back. When I was in high school, I volunteered at my NPR station answering phones during the membership drive. I'm Ari Shapiro, and when I see organizations doing good work in the community, I want to support them. That's why this Giving Tuesday, I'm donating to public radio. And you don't have to wait until then to give back. Here's how to do it right now. Donate online at gpb.org or call 1-800-222-4788. Thanks for making a difference. There are two issues that we're going to have a lot of time to get into in more depth as the new legislature convenes in January, but I do at least want to touch on each of them very briefly right now because as I look at our uh, uh, the tweets that come in to us and our Facebook Live listeners, viewers, they talk about them a lot. One of them is pre-existing condition. I, I mean, is Medicaid expansion, which, of course, Stacey Abrams made a showcase issue in her campaign. Brian Kemp said he opposes it because it will cost way too much money. Ed, I think there are people out there who saw that Tom Price has been appointed to the transition committee for Brian Kemp and have said, uh-oh, this is a guy who opposed the Affordable Care Act. And this is someone who certainly is going to put the uh, brakes on anything that uh, the Republican legislature might try to do to talk to Kemp about the possibility of expanding Medicaid. Because we do know there are Republicans down at the Capitol who are thinking that might be the way to go. But what does Tom Price's appointment to the transition team mean? I think the people that 
that are texting us uh, and posting on Facebook are right. Uh, he does oppose uh, Medicaid expansion, uh, and uh, he is going to push hard uh, to oppose that. He is going to propose alternatives to that, though, that I think uh, will go a long way to accomplishing a lot of the same goals that those who want to have Medicaid expansion will get, uh, and that are certain Medicaid waivers that we've seen successfully used in such states as Arkansas and Wisconsin and some other places that have expanded uh, the, the health care uh, throughout throughout their respective states. And that's the bottom line here, really, is is what is going to get better health care into, uh, into more households to help more people. Yeah. Uh, not whether or not one is a, or the other is important, but, what, but w- what's going to actually get that done. All right. So that's one of the issues we're going to watch very closely. It'll be fascinating to see. Uh, Kemp was fairly vague in the campaign about he, he did talk waivers, but waivers can mean a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll see what he comes yeah. forth with. Uh, the other one, Michael, that people are really talking a lot about on our social media platforms is religious liberty. He, uh, Kemp said in this interview yesterday, we played it, that uh, he supports religious liberty bill. He says he supports the same bill that was passed by a Democratic administration under President Clinton, the federal bill. The difference being that there is a federal civil rights Act that, in fact, protects marginalized mm-hmm. groups like gays and lesbians yes. in the eventuality the Religious Liberty Bill might impose upon their exercise of uh, freedom, too. Yes, yeah, so I wasn't really sure about uh, about that and how how that would play out. But, you know, I also know that from a larger standpoint, um, you know, it's something that that Governor Deal ultimately did not side with. And, um you know, this coming back up again and again and again, I think, is is going to run directly opposed to the business community and what's happening uh, with Georgia and, you know, the greatness of Georgia being the number one state to do business in is all great and fine. And when it starts to impact that, even looking back at this this previous election now, Stacey Abrams has even came out publicly and said, you know, to the movie industry, do not boycott Georgia. Um, there, there are going to be pressures that are going to be put on by the business community uh, that is going to directly impact this. And I think that's ultimately why Governor Deal decided not to sign on. And I think Brian Kemp is going to have to look at this very, very closely, um, you know, again, kind of placating back to to his base. But I think at the end of the day, he's going to, have to look at, you know, what's best for Georgia. Not only this issue, but going back to to uh, Medicaid expansion as well, where most Georgians see that now as something that they want to have in place. So, you know, Brian Kemp's got some choices to make, you know, now that, now that he's in the he's in the governor's seat. Um, it's much more different than the campaign trail. Yeah, Tamar, yeah. every leader, have, you, you run a campaign on things you believe in, you govern on issues in which you have to take into consideration more factors than the campaign makes you do, right? Oh, absolutely. But you also have, as, as we've been talking this whole hour, all your different constituencies who are yeah. who are angling for, for different things. And, and religious liberty is kind of the perfect example, especially now that Amazon has decided they're not coming to Georgia. Yeah. I think a lot of um, social conservatives are saying, hey, you know, Virginia and New York, uh, where Amazon is going, they have – um, you know, kind of versions of referral laws on the books, and 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 Amazon still chose them. Why are what are we waiting around for? Yeah. Oh, tomorrow, aren't you? Wor- don't you wish now you'd bought that condominium <laughs> in Crystal City that you could now turn around and double the price for? Right. And a few quick things. Uh, actually, uh, very regrettably, because I believe that they should be protected underneath the, the federal civil rights laws. Uh, gays and lesbians are not presently protected underneath the civil rights laws uh, in the federal government, and, and they should be. Uh, number two is, Michael's absolutely right, one of the great concerns about uh, legislation like RIPA is whether or not the, a state will also have a strong civil rights bill, and perhaps that is uh, where Kemp and some other folks in the General Assembly can thread the needle, where they would pass a RIPA bill, but they would also include that civil rights could civil be, rights talk about and something that could bring, bring together the the legislature and the people of this state that would be a powerful powerful and, and, tool and you know and that's and that's perhaps something that, that that they should look at it quite frankly that's something that I've advocated for a long time that that should be done all right i want to i want to stop for a minute because you said something before we went on the air and with the remaining time i want to just go around very quickly on i did not know that you and another one of our favorite <laughs> panelists mary margaret oliver we're in the same congregation, and that, in fact, you do a teaching 
you teach together at church on Sundays. Tell us what you just taught on, because it's worth three or four minutes of conversation on this final live show before Thanksgiving. Well, it, it was an interesting Sunday, uh, and and Mary Margaret and I alternate, uh, along with a couple of other people, a, a class on, on in, in our parish called Finding Jesus on the Front Page, which sometimes is hard to do. And and the, the, and the, the topic of the day last Sunday was... Uh, how to sit down with your family members uh, at Thanksgiving and have a constructive conversation, <laughs> uh, particularly you know, given the last I two Thanksgivings we that we've been <laughs> through before. And folks did not want to go through a third one like that. And, you know, what, what ultimately it came down to is to have conversations like we're having here in which you're not just sitting here waiting to give your bullet points back, but you're actually engaged in a constructive conversation. And uh, try to remember that at the end of the day, you still love each other. <laughs> All right. Michael, do you have any advice for how people in split households, mixed households, can talk amicably at the Thanksgiving table? Avoid alcohol until the conversation is <laughs> done. <laughs> definitely, definitely start with that, and uh, and start off with a compliment. If you can, if you can find even ground to begin with, lead in with that premise where you know you have commonality, and start from there. Oh, well, I don't know what preach, household you Michael, come from, preach. Michael, but but avoid alcohol is not going to be something that's going to be happening at mine. Tomorrow, what about your Thanksgiving? <laughs> Oh, well, we try our best to avoid politics in my house. Yeah. But I think, I think you know, the skills I use for interviewing people are also things you, you can take to the, the Thanksgiving table. You know, it helps to learn how other people think, regardless of what their opinions are. So asking more questions. How, you know, how did you get to that, that play, you know, that opinion on that issue? What are kind of the underpinnings of it? And I think people are really flattered when you ask them about themselves I, you and, just, and I, how they could. I have to. No, no. You just said the most important thing. As the host of this program, I am so lucky, and it's one of the things I'm grateful for, that I have an opportunity to talk to panelists who have such various positions, points of view, perspectives from the most conservative Republicans to the most liberal Democrats. And and some of you who are out there listening or watching us, you just really get irritated with the people who don't share your point of view, although for the most part, you like hearing various points of view. But I get to know each of them as people. And I know that no matter how they may disagree with each other when they sit down at the table, uh, that they're all human beings. And that if I can learn just a little something from each of them, in the long run, it kind of makes me... I hope, a little bit smarter, a little bit wiser. Um, and with that, I'm, I also want to say, as we get set to close, I'm so grateful to all of you out there who have been listeners to this show for four and a half years now. You have been with us. You've told us how much you like what we do. You sometimes offer us great feedback when you're irritated with something I've said or one of the panelists said. You know, I try to answer almost every email I get, whether you're telling me I'm an idiot or that you think I'm terrific, because I think it's important to engage with you. So I'm deeply grateful to all of you for being a part of Political Rewind. I'm also grateful to the team that works on this show every single day. And uh, with special gratitude to uh, Faust and Jimison, who uh, put up with me as we produce this show for you. Uh, Tamar Hallerman, uh, uh, Michael Owens, Ed, I hope all of you, Ed Lindsay, I hope all of you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, the same to you in our listening audience. We will be back with our live show again on Monday. We're going to talk a bit about what's happening in immigration on Monday. Chuck Cook, the immigration attorney, Heath Garrett, will be with us as well. So come back and see us on Monday on Political Rewind. Thank you.